is Jerry DiPiano, and I am joined by Dr. Juliana Hauser, and you are listening to or possibly viewing the Love Mia Vita podcast. For those of you that haven't had the privilege and pleasure of spending some time with me and Dr. Juliana Hauser, let me share a little bit of information on her background. So Dr. Juliana has received, studied and received her PhD in counseling education from the College of William and Mary. She is a thought leader, a sexpert, who is diving deep into the hard to have conversations that all of us need to be having. She does lead conversations about relationships, agency, sexuality, intimacy, and so much more. I believe you're gonna find her to be extremely approachable. And it's because she spent decades counseling thousands of individuals, partners on their paths to discover their sexual agency, to uncover their intimacy and have a fulfilling sexual connection, but so much more. So Dr. Juliana, Juliana, it's always a pleasure to have you as our guest on the Love Me Evita podcast. Thank and, you for having me. I love it. I always look forward to this. And we we love having you as well. You know, we have this mutual admiration thing going on. Um, I think I probably would say that I have greater admiration for you than you should for me, but. No, it, absolutely not. I'm the president of your fan club, Jerry. Thank you. Well, in any event, um, we have a lot of fun with these podcasts, but not all of our topics are humorous or lighthearted. Many of them are very serious and many of them have implications for what people are going through at this particular stage of their life. And, and when I say at this stage of their life, we talk about midlife and changes that happen in midlife. And in this case, sometimes it evol involves the loss of a partner. We talk about the loss of a partner when it is a separation, ending of a relationship through divorce or separation. But we also know that at this time of one's life, we often see that disease and disorders uh, become much more um, significant and often they are terminal. And when one loses a partner through death, it can be quite devastating and, and unsettling and it can really wreak havoc in one's life. So today, our podcast is really how to navigate through the loss of one's partner, whether you're married or you're in a significant relationship. We want to have a conversation with you, our audience, about what that means, how one can think about the future, because there is always hope, even though you may feel hopeless in the situation and in the moment. So how to move forward after your partner dies. You know, somebody um, asked the question, what's worse, death or divorce? And I will interject a little bit of humor. If anybody's watched Grace and Frankie, just on Netflix, um, the relationship, um, Grace's relationship and, and Frankie's relationship with their partners ends. Their partners, their husbands, decide that they are in love with one another and they are going to move on. And at one point, Grace, when she's trying to process the fact that her husband has left her for another man, 
she said, it would be better if you had died. And I'm paraphrasing, but I, I don't agree with that. Either one kind of stinks. So let's, let's talk about that a little bit. Uh, and I, uh, I respond to that saying that I um, am, uh, uh, un unluckily have been in both situations. And so I can speak to it personally and, and then professionally that um, I've been asked what was worse, either for my personal life or what, what do I see as worse or what is the harder one? And, and you're absolutely right. They both are horrific. They both upend everything in your life. They are both unwanted, no matter what their circumstances are. And they, and they require a different path in some way. Some things are similar, but there's some differences that are really crucial about if you've lost your partner through death um, or through divorce. But, you know, I, I, um, I have a good friend who's a grief counselor and she put on Facebook that question. I'm not sure I've seen a more heated discussion uh, than outside of politics than this this Facebook thread of which was worse. And uh, it was, there was a lot of opinions uh, about which was worse and it, there was no consensus really um, on it. So um, we'll leave that debate uh, to, uh, to continue outside and we'll go into um, what it means to have someone who you love and who is partnered with you die. And I've also been asked um, through my work of what's the worst kind of person in your life to die? Is it a spouse? Is it a child? Is it a parent? And you know, what, is, what does that mean? And again, like I'm not sure we need to put any kind of hierarchy to loss, but um, I do think there's uniqueness in each of those relationships. And um, so I'm just glad that you chose a topic that's really relevant um, in our age group of losing a spouse. And we were just talking earlier about, we have people in our lives who are going through this too right now. And, and I have several people in my, in my life who've experienced this and it's just utterly heartbreaking um, to watch someone uh, go through that or to experience it yourself. It's, it, it is so true. I, you know, I reflect on um, both my, my grandmother, my paternal grandmother who um, lost her husband when she was in her early sixties. She was still a very vibrant woman, very active, and he was the love of her life. And then I also reflect on my mom when my dad passed away and she navigated 13 years without my dad. She was not 60. She was quite a bit older than that. But once again, this was the most significant relationship in her life. And how to think about moving forward was a challenge because she was an empty nester, had long been an empty nester. In fact, both my grandmother and my mom, uh, when they lost their significant other. So I don't think it matters how old you are when it happens. It just, you know, it is a massive upheaval in your life. And sometimes the question is, how will I ever heal? Because that was, you know, at least one of the things that I learned um, when my paternal grandmothers had lost my grandfather. How will I heal? And she was so much in love with him. She was just 17 when they married. So they were pretty young. She came over on a boat from Italy with uh, a child. He was already in the United States and she came to find him with a baby in her arms. So, you know, it was tough. It was really tough. And that's, those are the sort of stories that you hear a lot. You know, they've shared so many life experiences, but even if you didn't, even if you were in your 30s or 40s and you didn't have those 30 years, um, 
it's horrible. So healing's healing is a journey. Let's let's talk about the healing journey cuz you don't just get over it. You don't. And it's so important, even though this may sound like an obvious statement, to, but you have to embrace and understand in your cells that everyone's grief journey is going to be different, every single person's. And, and so we'll, we'll get into this further, but it, you have to step into your grief journey, one, not assuming you're going to know how it's going to go and how it's going to feel, two, being able to be judgment-free of how you go about it and what that looks like. And to understand that it's not a destination. It just isn't. There isn't this moment that you're like, I am healed. And therefore that is what I'm leading to. Like this, I've achieved healing. That is not going to happen. And it is not, if you had that mindset, it, it will be very difficult to see how you experience the grief journey in a way that there is health to it. Um, and so I really encourage that and to surround yourself with people who see it that way too, that don't put pressure on you to do grief in a certain way at a certain time period. You know, it's when you, when you think about this, um, you just, I think you described it um, in an article that is also available on our website um, as um, not being a destination. So you don't just arrive somewhere and Sometimes it takes up less space in your life. Grief never goes away. It's the price, the, what is the, uh, the, I don't know that it's a cliche, but the grief, grief is the price we pay for love. So if you love someone deeply, it never really goes away. They change, right? It might, it's sort of like a metamorphosis that takes place in your life. So I love that you call it a journey and not a destination. And you, and you describe, um, you use metaphors um, to talk about what happens when we move in this journey that's called grief, the grief journey. You know, I, one of my uh, favorite descriptions that that I've come across is um, not my own. <laughs> and uh, it is from a beautiful source of a comedian, uh, Nora, who I highly suggest that people look up. Um, she uh, has several TED Talks. I think it's a couple. I think it's two. But she has this way of describing um, how to look at and how, what, to, what to expect in parts of your journey. And this is a part that you do want to conceptualize. So if you look at four different squares, and the square represents your life. So this is the day-to-day -day life, your inner life and your outer life of like logistics and then your inner world. You're the square. And when, when the loss happens, when the death happens in your life, the grief is a circle inside of it. In the very beginning, the circle touches all four sides of that square. Everywhere you look is grief. Every, it bumps up against your daily routine, your relationships, your conversations. It, it's, it's the funeral arrangements. It's the how hard it is to go to sleep at night. It's everywhere you turn. It's a 360 grief. And then it, it changes. The time frame is different and how that happens is different. But then the next one is the square, your life. And the circle inside of it is touching three sides. So it's those places in your grief journey where you've actually laughed and you're like, oh my goodness, I've kind of forgotten how awful and miserable and, and this is, or it's you've continued in work and you've had a work meeting that it didn't consume you. Uh, a conversation, you went to the grocery store, you had a moment that you've actually fell asleep 
without sobbing yourself to sleep, whatever that is, this that one part of your life had a respite from, from that experience. And then it continues to two sides. And then eventually, and, and the, the static visual of it is that the circle isn't touching all four sides, but that's a little misleading because really what it should be is like a ping pong. So at the, at, at really at this place of your journey that is in perpetuity, it's not the destination again, it's, it's really where you end up saying a, a very long time is grief is always there. That circle is always inside the square of what your life is, but it ping pongs. Sometimes it doesn't touch any of the sides and that could be for days or hours or weeks. It could be that um, it it bounces daily as a, as a, for some parts of it, whether it's an anniversary or a memory or, or, or something else happening in your life. It never leaves you, but it stops bumping up against so much of your life. And it often when, when people, when I meet people at this phase, when they're, when they're there, it's uh, like, ah, I made it through this. And, and yet it's something I carry with me. Some people describe it as a hum that's always there and others will describe it as it's something that, that I do carry. It's always a part of my identity. It's always a part of what my, my story is. And I, it affects me logistically and externally, and it affects me emotionally, but not nearly as often. And, and the key to that is not, is understanding that just because the circle is smaller in circumference, it does not mean it's smaller in intensity. So I I think that's something else that people find is a, is a barometer for health and, and where you are in, in achieving in your healing journeys that it doesn't hurt as much or as intensely. And I, I find that to be very, um, very confusing to ever give to yourself or to anybody else, because it can be 20 years and you can be grief stricken. That person that I lost died 20 years ago. And it's it, that absolutely described my journey. Um, and there are times that it's still 20 years later that the grief is absolutely intense. And then there are many days and weeks that I don't think about it. And it's this journey is different from, for every person, which is one of the reasons why counseling can be so important. Grief counseling can be so important when someone is going through this process. You know, we we often learn that someone has a terminal illness and the person who's the caregiver has to work with the knowledge that this is probably not going to end well. It's going to end in death and they are going to lose their partner. And at the same time that they love the, this person, it's really hard, right? It's hard. The work is hard. It's physically hard. It's emotionally difficult and trying. And it's it can be draining. And we all know someone that may have been in this situation. And then their partner dies. And I heard it said from, and this is why it's so unique to the individual. I heard an individual say, you know, I was so I knew I knew I would be devastated when I lost my partner, but I kind of feel guilty because I also have a sense of relief that it my pain and suffering is over because I don't have to watch this person die. I'm tired. I'm physically tired. I'm emotionally tired. So, I mean, it it is different for for every person, and sometimes we try to give advice and it's really hard to know who to take that advice 
you know, from whom to take that advice, right? Mm -hmm. Yes, it, it is. And that's a, a pretty critical part of how you navigate through this. And I, I hear the line a lot, like, I'm so surprised who showed up and I'm so surprised who didn't. And that could be physically, or it could be in, in the advice and the thoughts and the ways that people show up. You know, it's death is, um, it's not something that our culture does well. And it can bring out, um, for those who are comfortable with death, uh, then there's a, there's a different um, verve to them and how they're supporting you compared to those who are really uncomfortable with it or trigger themselves from, from memories or experiences, which may have nothing to do with how much they wish they could show up for you. They just don't have the skill level or the comfort level to do that. But when it's your grief journey, that is not for you to take on. You already have so much that you are handling on your own. And so this is the time when you have the ability and you have the, uh, the capacity and bandwidth to be very discerning of who you surround yourself with. And the, the line that I like to use is, is that you expand your support and you shrink your inner circle. And I have found that to be very helpful. So you you do allow like the the casserole uh, brigade to come if that's so what you want. You um, you know allow for those conversations of people who are talking about your partner and wanting to give you support and be there, and include you in things. But you shrink the ones that really have your ear, that really um, get to see more of the of the parts of you that are experiencing the healing. Um, and you may be surprised who's in the inner circle during this time of your life and allow for that variance to happen. Let people show up for you that um, have the skill and ability for you at this moment. Don't judge that either way. Like people that you maybe hadn't spoken to in 10 years, all of a sudden you're talking to every single day. Like, how did this happen? And your best friend, like, where are you? Where have you, where have you gone? This person that you knew every part of my relationship with, those kinds of things, allow that to happen too. And you can deal with what that means to you later. But in the moment when you're in the heat of, especially in the beginning phases of your grief journey, um, I want there, I advise there to be flow and ease to it. Uh, and then my next kind of bit of advice in this is to look at it as in you're the president of your grief journey and you have an advisory circle. You have people that trust, that you trust their opinions. They all have different roles in it. I talked about that with the divorce one too. You, you need different kinds of people that can give you different parts of support. Um, and if you're lucky enough to have multiple options, say yes to them and feel unapologetic about saying no to the ones who really don't need to be on that uh, advisory circle at, at this time. It's, it's really good advice. I mean, we, and we, when we think about what, you know, what and who, whom should be on that advisory council, there, there are lots of well-meaning folks. You mentioned the, you know, the, the casserole um, makers, and we, we love that because we still need to take care of our bodies, right? So it's body, mind, and spirit. And so they are, you know, bless them for doing what they do, but they may, may not be the type of individual that is comfortable giving you the kind of support that you need just sitting with you, maybe sitting in silence with you. So I like the idea of an advisory council and everyone plays a different role and you kind of get to pick and choose what and, and who can provide you with the kind of support that you need 
in terms of where you are in the journey. And I suppose it changes, does it not? Does. Mm -hmm. It does. And allow that to happen too. This is, you're, you know, people don't have to sign up for a lifetime on, the, on this committee. It can be that, and some will stay the course and should, but there should be some kind of changing of the guard in some of those places. And, and what, what I have found too, is that you, again, this is in the, in the best of circumstances, if you have a multiple people to choose from and not everybody does, but you, you really want to have uh, or several people that, um, especially when this is the, the loss of your, your spouse or your long-term partner, someone who really understands the relationship, the complexity of a relationship. Some people are blessed with a really, really healthy long-term relationship and some more people have a complexity to it so that you don't have to turn your spouse into a saint in that process, or you don't have to have acted like you had the most perfect marriage or relationship ever in the grief process. Because those are the places that I hear when I have clients going through this that they feel haunted by and they don't know what to do with the complexity of how that how that went to, to bear and, and what that relationship was like, as well as for those this was the love of their life that you need people. I, I can't tell you how many people when it's the when they have described their spouse as the love of their life, how many people have said to them, you'll find somebody else or you're lucky you had it. And oh, just want to like, a, I, instead of greeting cards, there should be like cards at funerals that say, you don't say this and you say this <laughs> to it. That is not a thing that you say to people. Um, it, and yet it's, it helps them, the person who's talking feel like they have something that they've offered. Um, don't offer that. And if people do, then they just get knock, knocked off the list of who gets to be in that inner circle with it. You, you need people that allow you to be where you are and how you're conceptualizing the relationship and be aware that you may conceptualize it differently as the death, um, the time between death and where you are um, transpires. Um, Going back to the point you made earlier, which again, like there's so many nuanced deaths, you know, there's a lot of details that 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 make a difference as to what kind of how the death happened. Um, but for those who experience a longer term death or they were a caregiver for it, um, there is a particular nuance to that experience. And it's it's often a both and that um, there is often a relief. I'm glad they're not suffering. And I don't know how, I didn't know how much more stamina I had in it. And there's guilt often associated with that. Um, there's also now, what do I do? Often you've had to give up your work or your day-to-day -day routines or those kinds of things. And, and perhaps very happily you did this and, and you wanted to take every moment and be the caregiver, or um, you had to straddle both worlds and that was very difficult, um, or you couldn't either logistically or emotionally do that. Um, I, I, it's every once in a while, I'll hear someone say they feel really happy of how they did it and every, they feel at peace with how all of that transpired and they, they ready to move on, or they're not grieving the loss or, or walking around going, what do I do now? But it's rare. Most people have some part of, uh, debriefing and, um, and healing they need to do with how the death occurred and their role alongside that person. And that's that's one of the one of the other factors that plays into this uh, what you refer to as how to handle the ambiguity and how to become agile because 
it's not it's not one way for all individuals. And you, you know, we we know if you were anticipating this was going to happen, you knew that your partner had a long-term terminal illness. It's one set of circumstances. It can be equally, if not more disruptive, it's if it's sudden and you're thrust into a situation where maybe you have to figure out what you're going to do with the finances and how you're going to handle family. If you have children, you might have you may have children. You might have children that are still living at home, possibly in college, maybe younger children. And now you're thrust into a totally different world of being mother and father and caregiver to ex extended family members. So it's it can be very, it can be disruptive, irrespective of how this happened. And so agility, I love that you talk about being agile and also being able to live with some ambiguity. And I'd like to dive into that a little bit more so with you. Yeah, I, um, you, you know, I've had uh, quite a few conversations about the concept of ambiguity and um, I, I mean, it's, it's, it's inescapable. It is a skill that as humans, we have to learn. And it, it is, and this is one of those places also where it really is a skill that will help you. Um, when, when, we, when we go into the experience of losing somebody with the personality or the skill set that we need certainty, boy, does it rock that because there is no certainty in death and there's no certainty in, in, the, in the death experience. Um, and there's no certainty in how you're gonna feel and how people are gonna act. Um, and again, I, when I, when we talk about ambiguity, I am not being glib and saying we should all be Zen and everything is fine. And who cares what happened? That's, that's not ambiguity. Ambiguity is saying, I don't know what I need, what I want, what's going to happen. And I'm going to be okay. For some that is represented through faith for others that is represented through groundedness and self-care for others that's through a support system or combination of all of that. But the underlying theme is, I don't know, no one can assure me and tell me the majority of these kinds of things and I don't like that, but I will be okay in this process, in this limbo, in this in-between. And when you can do that, when you can get to that place, and this, again, it's not all the time, 100% of every single day, but when you can get back to that mindset and surround yourself with people who also don't need to provide certainty for you, which because this is, this is often where people make the mistake is they try to provide certainty for the person who's ambiguity in this death experience when they are okay with not knowing too. When someone says to you, I don't, um, I don't know what to say, but I'm here. That is often one of the most welcome things that people say, and you need to provide that for yourself in that process too. Um, in, the, in that vein of, of being agile, that's part of being uh, in ambiguity is you have to have agility as to what's happening. Again, it doesn't mean in Ambiguity doesn't mean inaction. It means I don't know and that I believe in myself to be okay in this. So you have to be agile in your actions of like, it didn't work for me then, but maybe now. So for instance, if someone, if someone suggests that you do um, a support group right now, maybe that's a no, but maybe later it's a yes or something that works for you now isn't going to work for you later. And you want to be okay with that and not so tied to it. I'll give you a couple examples in, in my journey. Um, it was really important to me early on. Uh, the, uh, this was something that, that I dated for a long period of time and we, we weren't married. Um, 
uh, he was in a band. And um, so we all rallied together and we were doing scholarship um, concerts and we were, um, they were inviting my son to the stage and dedicating songs. And they did an album uh, about him, um, dedicating a couple songs to him and, and to, to me and my son. And all of that felt so important. And I wanted to come to every concert. I wanted to be there. And it meant something to me until I started realizing I was representing the ghost of, um, of the person we left. And I started feeling that like, ooh, this feels life is moving on. And yet his name is Chris. Chris and I weren't. That didn't feel good anymore. Or they would be happy. I'd walk into the room and be like, oh, yes. You know, everyone had to change and no one could be happy around me because and or I couldn't be happy. And um, I had to be agile to that. But you couldn't have told me that early in. And I would have thought like, you know, like I'm forever going to be a part of this. And when it when it became clear I needed to not be for them and for me, um, I was grateful I listened to that. Um, I, the same thing with his mother. I, there was a, a quite a period of time that I really felt like I needed to be there and to take care of her until I realized I was putting her grief in front of mine and I needed to be able to, um, to be there for me and to, to, to say this, this part doesn't feel good or this, this does. And, um, and the people who were in my life were different in, in the first part of the year compared to the, the final part of that. And um, I kept allowing that to be okay even if it wasn't popular, and even if some people didn't understand some of the choices I was making. And even sometimes when I didn't know if I was making the right choice for myself, I would make a choice and then I would believe in myself that if it didn't feel right after I made it, I could I could juke to another position on it. It it's it's got a very by day. And it, it also varies by where you are in terms of your life and your life transitions. As you mentioned, this was perhaps a younger relationship that you had. And using the metaphor of the circle in the, uh, in, the, in, the, in the boxes, it bumped up against fewer boxes. And so it wasn't necessary that you absorbed all of that the same way that you did when, when it first, when, when your partner, when your beloved person, Chris, uh, passed away. So it changes. It could change by the day, it could change by the year, it could change by the hour, depending upon where you where you are and what's going on around you. We we often hear that there are times when uh, bedtime uh, is called dread time because that's where loneliness really creeps in. It could be when you have coffee in the morning, if you're used to getting up together and doing things in a routine, like working out, having coffee, going for a walk or a jog, maybe that's dread time. But we hear more of this when, when partners are left in the solitude at night. Mm -hmm. um, and there's some techniques that, that are recommended for those that feel that sense of aloneness um, and fear because they have they have lost the that love they have lost that closeness even even if love waxes and wanes as we all know it uh, but even if they it, the physical closeness is not there mm -hmm. 
And so, so there's biologic reasons why nighttime is harder uh, with depression or uh, in grief. But uh, what, what you're speaking for too is just the, the psychological parts of it. The number one thing that I hear is um, how awful it feels to not have the weight of the body weight of somebody next to you. And the recommendation is, is to get one of those long pillows or several pillows, or you stack stuff up in it. And, um, and I, you know, that's not nearly as satisfying as having your person there, but what it helps you do is it can trick once your body is in, a, when your once your body is asleep, it can help your body feel like, ah, there's a presence there because it can, it actually can wake you when your body becomes aware that there's no one next to you. And, um, and then now you're up at two in the morning or three in the morning, um, and, uh, dealing with this at a, at a very rough time. So that's a very, um, it can feel unsatisfying as a tip, but it actually is quite effective to do it in that way. Another thing is, and again, I'll go back to the original technique, which is do not judge anything that works. Don't judge it. What works works. And that's just a relief. It's kind of like orgasms. We're not going to judge them. We're just going to be happy for them. Uh, so if you find something that is helping you through the night to get to sleep or whatever you do it, um, uh, this day in, in technology, when we can do video calls, it's something that I highly recommend people do. Don't be shy in that. I've had men, women, all genders who will ask somebody to FaceTime them to sleep. People do, I actually recommend that for long distance couples, but it's the same thing for going to, to grief. It may sound weird if you've never done it, um, but it can be so reassuring. I've had people that when, when their spouse has died, they've had somebody that they actually pick as a snorer because they just need a snore. And so they fight sign them. They can't see each other. They just put the phone down, it's, but they can hear each other and they feel, they don't feel alone in that process. And um, if it works, great. If that feels weird, maybe try it. If you just don't want to do it, that's fine. Um, I've had people that it's really lonely when they're in the bedtime routine. So they have a phone call with somebody where they're brushing their teeth and washing their face, and then they get tucked into bed virtually and they go to sleep. Don't be shy in that. Don't be shy to have someone stay in bed with you. Um, if, if you have someone that you feel comfortable with or stay in the house. Um, I, uh, I, I, we've talked about sleep aids. There are things that are healthy for you that um, in moderation and with, with the right care makes a difference. And again, it is about asking um, what do I need right now and having the audacity to say, great, I'm going to do it. It shouldn't feel audacious, but it often does feel like that. Um, and, and, and nighttime also, uh, don't be shy about getting medical intervention. Don't be shy about asking uh, a, somebody to help you. Um, like, what do you do? I, I've It's been so interesting to me when I work with people and I ask, say, have you gone to a medical provider? Have, have you asked anybody? Have you gone to any product? Have you done anything to help you in that? And they don't want to do it. And, and of course, not everyone is trained for this um, and not all products are right for it. But if you get the right product, you get the right medical provider, it can help you also. Don't be shy about that. Um, and, you, and you won't need it forever. Um, but there's time periods that that, um, that it can make a difference. So it could be um, pharmacological and it could be a combination of pharmacology with counseling. And those are, those are not crutches. They may be necessities. But seek out that type of support. And if, you're, if your support group, if your advisory council, as you 
uh, in, you shared earlier, does it work for you? Seek out a professional. Uh, not everyone can afford uh, that sort of counseling, but if you can, um, that may be something that you want to consider, particularly if you see this as persistent and uncomfortable and it, and it keeps bumping up against all aspects of your life. But you also have some tips and it's really taking these very you know, baby steps um, as I reflect on it, baby steps for how to move forward. Um, and I think that it probably applies to ending a relationship, whether it's death, whether it's divorce, separation. But um, one of the things that you talk about is keep doing things that mm -hmm. you like, that support you. It could even be distracting to you. Yes. Uh, if it's okay, I want to go back to one more thing um, about what we, the couple we just had, which is if you feel a nudge towards reaching out to somebody, if you feel a nudge towards maybe trying something, um, I, I, I encourage you to try it. And that may not seem like a big piece of advice, but it actually really is because what I often see in the grief process is people overriding their intuition and again, like going into what, how it should be or whatever. Like if I haven't talked to this person in 20 years, but I know I saw on Facebook that they had someone die. If you feel nudged to reach out to them to say help, or how did you do it? But then you do all the niceties in your head about, well, they don't know who I am or what are the, you know, mm -mm. drown out that noise and follow that nudge. It's when the worst has already happened. I want it to help you open up to, and if they don't respond back, it'll be okay. <laughs> or, if, oh, they've turned into an asshole in these 20 years and that wasn't helpful at all. Uh, then it's like, okay, I'm fine with that. But there will be times that your intuition and your nudging is exactly what you need. So follow that. And, and, and again, be agile with how that turns out. Uh, so, so going back to how do you, how do you move into that space or how, how do you move on? Um, I, you know, I think you have to first find a relationship with the, with the terminology moving on for some people, they have a hard time with that phrasing and it, it feels disrespectful. It feels like you are letting go or, or like you need to carry your grief as an honoring of that person's life in that. And then you have the people who on the other side of the street will say, but they would want you to be happy and they want you to move on. And you often like just go back and forth like a tennis match between the two. And uh, I think it's, I think it's a mixture of those. Um, and so what I like to um to ask of people in their own agency on their own terms to say, what is working for you right now? What is the routine? Is it waking up and working out? Is it having that coffee? Is it, um, yeah, you still talk to his friends or you're having those phone calls with your kids. If it's working for you right now, that's a yes. Then I look at, were there any traditions or there any routines that feel comforting to you? Um, comforting to you first. And then the second part of that would be feel like you're honoring the person if, if that feels like a need for yours. So you keep those things too. And you just keep checking in with, is this working for me? Is this feeling okay for me? And as long as it's a yes, then it's a yes. And we don't judge it beyond that. If it's a no, you don't judge that either. You look at it and you're like, is it a no to throw out or is it a no to tweak? 
and do some discernment if you don't have it and the bandwidth to discern and you get people in your council to come and help you like what can I do differently so there's that part of it and then this the time frame of this next piece is variable as, as we've said a lot um but the next piece is you need to start doing things that are different and I, I often meet quite a bit of resistance in this phase of like, I'm not ready. I always respect it when someone says they're not ready. I got it. Let me just plant the seed for you because you may be ready, more ready than you think. And um, and I, I like a couple of things in this new. I like something that, let's say it's something you haven't done in a long time. Uh, let's say you used to like photography. And uh, and you used to be good at it, but it just didn't fit with life in this time period. Get back into that, whatever that means. And I don't mean you have to take a course, but let's just say you start taking more pictures and you care about it and you share them. Um, it needs to be something that is has some familiarity, so you're not totally starting from scratch, but there's a novelty to it that feels like can give you a little bit of juice, a little bit of vibrancy and some joy. Um, actually, I'm going to remove the word joy and say pleasure, that it can bring you some pleasure. Joy can have be tricky um, for, for people in, in, in this process. And then I want you to have something else, which is I want you to do something super new to you, something you've never done that's going to completely stretch you in it. And this is, again, it varies on when someone's ready for it. But the reason for it is it's very distracting to learn something new. And it's a very different part of your brain and your heart that you're working on in that process. Um, it is not dishonoring um, any traditions or routines that, that you had with your special person. Um, and in fact, in some way, I've had some people feel like they're carrying that person with them and like they would get a tickle out of this or they wouldn't believe that I'm doing this uh, or they wouldn't even care like whatever those things are at it I've often heard that there is it's the opposite of what you may think instinctively it's actually can feel bonding with the the person that you've lost in some ways if you have that belief system than it is for like you're abandoning the life that you created with them and it's good for you it's just good for you it gets you in new environments it gets you doing new things i'm not saying quit everything in your life and change all of this but i'm saying add something new to it uh, and particularly if you can assign it to a goal, if it has, if there's an end thing that you can be working towards, and then you can abandon that and not worry about it ever again, and it's gotten you through this time period, or you can make a new one to it. And along that line too is, um, I, it's really important to have, um, we're talking about that wider circle of the expansion of it, to have people who, who know who your person was, um, on various degrees of, of intimacy and knows the story and and can uh, can just know this is an important day or you're missing your person at this event or you know whatever this is you need to have those people and then you need to be forming relationships with people who have no idea don't know the person and don't know what's going on so that you get to have some anonymity in your grief there is there there will come a time in almost every person I've ever known that you just want to go somewhere and you don't get the look that you get to just be a human going to this ball game or going to this to to this event and you don't have to worry what anyone's thinking about how you're looking acting and feeling which you've got to have that room to do that these are great tips I always like to 
to share with anyone that they need to give your, you also need to give yourself some grace, right? Mm -hmm. And oftentimes we think that, you know, we have to power through everything, that we have to get everything done. If the, you've made the funeral arrangements, you've taken care of perhaps the family, but their children, or maybe their parents, maybe their aged parents, that, that they're the parents of your partner. So you've done all that and you just feel like you just have to power through it. I always say, give yourself some grace. And remember that you got through, you're, you're going to get through this. You said it one day at a time. Yes, there will be things that are going to be confusing. You might feel lost, but you know that you're in control. You, you have control of one person and that is you. And you will, you will power through and your way, in your way, not in your neighbor's way, not in your sister's way, not in your mother's way, but in, specifically in your way. And I think those are these are really good pieces of advice for taking that next step, that maybe that, that very small baby step. Mm -hmm. So I want to thank you for for this um, for these pearls of wisdom. And again, this is this is Dr. Juliana Hauser, who is a psychologist and an expert in counseling. But grief is you know very different for every person. So. If you can use what we've shared with you on this podcast, then we're really happy to have had the opportunity to do so. And if you need more, please seek out the help, the help of a medical professional, a licensed clinical social worker, a psychologist, a learned person who can be there for you. And if you wanted to reach out to Dr. Juliana, I'm sure she would be more than happy to hear from you. She is based in Kentucky. Uh, but she does take appointments virtually. And again, this is not to be a solicitation, but for those of you that may be listening to this, if that, that's an option for you, then that's fantastic. You can reach her at drjuliana.com. I hope I got that right, Juliana. Yeah, Dr. Dash. Uh, Dr. Dr. Juliana is, a, I think, a dentist in Romania. Uh, <laughs> drjuliana.com. Um, you can find her uh, on the internet. Uh, she has her own website. And if you're interested in taking a course from her, she does something called the Revealed Course. So there are lots of different ways that you can get to know Dr. Juliana better. Um, and hopefully grief isn't one of the ways that you get to know her better. But um, if it is, then you know that you have a resource in her. So I just want to thank you once again, Juliana. It's always a pleasure to have you. these conversations with you. Oh, you're welcome. And uh, as always, and as we started this too, that I have such respect for you that you go to the topics that are hard for a lot of people to go to. So important. And it says so much about you, um, your leadership and your company. Thank you. Uh, ultimately, we care about women and men. But as a woman's healthcare company, obviously, we are here to support women, empower them with knowledge and with professionals like yourself that can share their wisdom and their knowledge. So with that, I want to thank you one more time. And I want to remind our audience to love Mia Vita and be well.